All right, New City, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 as we continue our series in Exodus Free at Last. And as we look at the Ten Commandments together, we are on commandment number eight. And this is what the word of the Lord says, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that as we look at this eighth commandment, reflect upon it for a few moments, Lord, that you would indeed, as all of us sit under the authority of your word, that you would speak to us and that you would do that work by the power of your spirit through your word, that you would transform us and conform us to the image of your son and our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's his name, in his name we pray. Amen. There's a story of a counterfeiter named Emmanuel Nanger, who lived in New Jersey sometime in the late 1800s. He began producing counterfeit $10 bills and slowly progressed up the scale to $20 bills and $50 bills, $100 bills. The U.S. Treasury Department first identified one of the $100 bills in, in November of 1893. He worked for weeks on each bill. Uh, he bought his paper uh, from... Uh, a company in Massachusetts. He cut the paper to the same size as a bill. He soaked it uh, in diluted coffee. He then produced the paper uh, over an authentic bill and traced the authentic bill's image. And lastly, he added in all the correct coloring and other details by using camel's hair brush. In the, uh, March of 1896, he passed a large bill at a local business, and when the bill got wet, the ink began to smudge. It was later reported to the local police. A search warrant was obtained to search his home, and in the attic they found his counterfeit workshop. And uh, on May 29, 1896, he was sentenced to six years in the penitentiary. Uh, he served his time. He was released and died at the age of 77. During that search, though, of his attic, uh, the police also found three portraits that he had painted. Uh, the portraits were eventually sold at auction for a total of $16,000, which was a ton of money back then. The tragedy is that Nanger almost, he took almost as long to paint one of those paintings as he did the counterfeit bills. Needless to say, he didn't have to steal. He chose to be a thief. He chose to be a thief. The commandment, do not steal, like the other commandments in the second half of the Decalogue, is not narrowed to one specific practice, but covers a broad range of activities that the Lord constitutes as theft. From individual sins of theft by persons to the collective sins of theft done by businesses and other institutions, theft does what all other sins against one another do. It, it destroys. It destroys. Uh, uh, stealing takes away what another possesses or has the right to possess, showing a blatant disregard for the life of another. And for the one who claims to know God, it shows a blatant distrust of the Lord to provide what one needs. 
Now, some of you may have wondered at that statement that stealing also includes taking or maybe, uh, maybe I should say keeping back what someone else has the right to possess. In Leviticus 19, uh, beginning at verse 9, we read this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker you shall, shall not remain with you all night until the morning. It's interesting that the command not to steal in this passage comes in the context of a command to the people not to strip their fields or their vineyards of all of its produce, but to leave it for the poor and needy of the land and the sojourner. Indeed, the emphasis uh, uh, at the end of verse 10, I am the Lord your God, is a reminder to all of us that we are not the ultimate owners of our possessions. Did you hear me this morning? We are not the ultimate owners of our possessions. They belong to the Lord. Thus, to not use those resources as he commands us is also a form of theft, theft from the Lord who has not made us the ultimate owners but stewards of what belongs ultimately to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all of those who dwell in it. If the earth is his, if everybody who dwells in it is his, if the whole world is his, then what do you actually own? It's all his to be used for his purposes. Amen, people of God. No wonder God takes then the sin of theft seriously. It's all his stuff. And human beings all belong to him as his image bearers. So to take what he gives to another or to deprive others by improperly stewarding his resources, hoarding and greedily accumulating things for ourselves and doing damage to the creation and to society as we do so is sinful, evil, and destructive. And the propensity for this sin, by the way, is in all of us. But you know how God shows his love for us? He shows his love for us in providing a means of salvation for our thieving hearts, for our stealing hearts. And it's not the answer anyone would have expected, for instead of punishing this evil out of us, God undoes the sin of Adam by giving, giving us another Adam. The crux of the gospel is this, for God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. While we were stealing, God gave. While we were taking, 
God gave. While we were depriving others of their due, God gave what we did not deserve. And in a world still filled with thieves, the Scriptures declare He makes His sun to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. The crux of the gospel is that God gives to thieves. To people who take, he responds with an even more incredible generosity. (laughs) He continues to show us the way through Jesus away from theft in all of its varied expressions and toward the radical love, care, and generosity that is the fruit of faith in Jesus Christ. Wherever there is theft of any kind, there is also a lack of faith in Jesus Christ who instructs us, but seek first the kingdom of God. In all of these things, all of the things that you take and steal and deprive others of, all of these things, watch this, will be added to you will be given to you. What things? (laughs) The things we steal from others, thinking that we will secure our life by them. I just want to remind all of us this morning that stealing has an expiration date, that theft has an expiration date, for there is no place in the kingdom of God for stealing, for taking, The kingdom is for those who trust in Christ and who, like the merchant in the search of a fine pearl, on finding it, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So how do we who have found that great pearl, that that pearl of great price in Jesus and his kingdom, how do we keep this commandment? How do we keep this eighth commandment? How do we keep our hearts and our practices, our activities, if you will, how do we keep How do we keep from stealing? The first thing I want to talk about this morning uh, is the call to resist. God gives this command, uh, like the other commandments, knowing both the internal uh, and the external impulses toward it. In other words, he knows what's in our hearts, and he knows what is around us that pushes us in that direction of taking what is not ours or keeping back what he commands us to give. And so we keep this commandment in part by resisting the world, by resisting our own sin nature, and by resisting the devil's invitation to participate uh, in all of those varied forms of stealing. There's an instructive word actually for us in the Proverbs in this regard uh, uh, that's in keeping with this commandment here in Exodus 20. In Proverbs 1, we read this, if they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent Uh, without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Note note the invitation to throw in your lot with us. And then note the instruction, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their past. Resist the temptation to participate with them. 
in their practices. We are being invited. We're being invited, or, or, or the Proverbs was warning his son about being invited into stealing as a way of participation in those activities, activities that center around uh, furthering our own condition in life over others through taking what they have or holding back what we are commanded to give. I see something that I believe will contribute to my own happiness in some way. You have it. I want it. And so I devise a means to get it from you, even if it means your death. And don't let the personal pronouns make us think that this is only something human beings do as individuals. We do it collectively. Businesses do it. Nations do it. Multinational corporations do it. Even religious organizations do it. You don't get unjust war, slavery, global poverty, and things like it without theft, without stealing, without taking what does not belong to you, without holding back what you are commanded by God, the owner of all things, to give. I'm not saying that theft is the only motivating factor in those things, but it is a contributing one. People want to further their own condition in life, to secure their own happiness, to make sure they are well-fed and well-clothed and well-housed and well-secured. And the people of Israel would have known by experience just how far people were willing to go to secure these things because many of their ancestors' lives were stolen through slavery and cruel labor in Egypt. God wasn't just talking about a theory here. He was talking about an experience that Israel had lived. Their own lives had been stolen. Their own labor had been stolen so that others as my dad would say, could live high off the hog. When God said, do not steal, they would have had experiential knowledge of the impact of stealing. So God said to them and now says to us, do not steal. Do not become participants in a way of life in which, in which you take from others or deprive from others the, the, uh, the, the, the good that, that, that is meant to further their own condition. In other words, don't be like the place you just came out of. Don't do what you have seen them do. Resist the temptation to take. Instead, do what the Apostle Paul will tell us centuries later, centuries later talking, by the way, to thieves. Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, watch this, so that he may have something to share with those who are in need. Did you know that's what you were meant to do with your money? Did you know you were meant to use it to help others who are in need, not to take and deprive others of what they need for life? For many of us, the call to resist may not come in regards to actively taking things from other people, but rather in regards to how we consider ourselves in relationship to our possessions. 
In other words, the challenge comes in thinking that we are the ultimate owners of our stuff rather than God. When we believe ourselves to be the ultimate owners, then sharing freely and radically becomes extremely difficult. It becomes difficult to freely and radically share what we have with others, to share with the poor the things that God has given us for their benefit and not just our own. When Israel was commanded not to gather in all of their harvest but leave some for the poor, they were acknowledging God's sovereignty and the right of the poor to benefit from the land that ultimately belonged not to Israel but to God. When they were called to bring all the tithe into the storehouse, that there might be food in God's house, they were again acknowledging God's ultimate ownership of all and the rights of the poor because of that ownership to benefit from the good of the land. Bring all the tithe in my house. And here's what God says, so that there may be food in my house. Does God eat? Who's the food for? It's for the poor and the needy of the land. Thus, when you hold back the tithe, what does God say in Malachi? You're robbing me. You're a thief. Yes, he does. So what if we resisted the belief that we were the ultimate owners of our stuff? What if we believed that it truly belonged to God? How radical would we would be in our generosity? This is a call, brothers and sisters, this call to resist stealing is a call to examine ourselves. It's a call to self-examination and obedience. It's a call to recognize the ways in which we participate in a kind of ownership that makes us the final determiner of what we do with our resources rather than God. An examination that may just cause us to stop participating in the practices that deprive the poor and needy in our midst of what is good and others in our midst of what is good and to their well-being. Amen, people of God. Keeping this commandment involves resisting the temptation to further our own condition through taking what others have or holding back what God commands us to give. It's also, keeping this command is also about restoring what we've taken. It's about restoring what we have taken. As God flesh out, fleshes out this commandment in the rest of His law, we, we read commandments like, like this. I found in Leviticus 6, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of the things that the people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or, lost, or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. This section goes on to describe the atoning sacrifice that is required for any who break this commandment. The call to restore what one takes through theft is clear in the passage and is found in other Old Testament passages as well. Yet what is codified in the law is seen more clearly in a New Testament story, of which we may all be familiar. It's in Luke chapter 19, where we read this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. 
He was a chief tax collector and, and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree, a fig tree, to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. This story, in my opinion, is a clear and profound demonstration of what happens when the salvation that Jesus brings works its way into our lives. The salvation that Jesus brings not only includes a revelation of who He is and what He has come to do, which is essential to our salvation. Make sure they tape that line, because I'm going to say something right now next. So I'm going to say this again. The revelation of who Jesus is and what He came to do is essential to our salvation. You got it? I said that. Okay. It also transforms. It also transforms us such that we concretely begin to do the things that are in keeping with the life of the kingdom, a life shown to us in the law, a life we could not secure for ourselves but has been secured for us by Jesus' death and resurrection. Zacchaeus is so transformed that he commits himself to a radical commitment to give away half his possessions to the poor and restore whatever he has stolen from others. When salvation came to his house, it changed the way he behaved, such that the thief now promises to restore what he has stolen. In fact, not just to restore it, but to give back four times what he has taken. Pay attention, I'm going somewhere. Let's not rush past this promise, because it would have almost certainly meant that Zacchaeus' condition in life, at least materially, would have drastically changed. But we have a dream. A particular dream. An American dream. That tells us that the real goal is our individual pursuit of happiness, comfort, pleasure, and success. But in the kingdom, when salvation comes, it so radically transforms people's lives that the thief steals no longer, but instead works with his hands. Watch this. Not so he can get a bigger house or a bigger car. 
not so he can have a bigger retirement account, but he works with his hands so that he might have something to share with those who are in need. I'm going to step back now because if I get too happy, I might fall off the stage. What if the church modeled its life after Zacchaeus? What if we were a half our goods, fourfold restoration of anything we have stolen kind of community? I say this not to suggest that there are not individual Christians or church communities that operate this way or that we ourselves are not seeking to embody this. I say it to encourage us toward reflection, prayer, and activity that pushes us more and more in the direction of being the kind of people, the kind of Christians that we see modeled in our brother, in our brother Zacchaeus. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, where it defines the duties of this Eighth Commandment, it puts this in the list. Giving and lending freely. One of the duties of the Eighth Commandment is giving and lending freely. That this is included says that stealing can involve resisting the call to give and to lend freely. To give and to lend freely. Without expecting, by the way, anything in return, which is what Jesus says to us. That this is included, again, says that resisting that can also be a form of stealing. The call here is toward a radical generosity such, such as that displayed by Zacchaeus. It means doing exactly what James says through his question when he is describing faith demonstrated through good works. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and any one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? A faith that is not dead is demonstrated in our actions. And in keeping with this commandment, those actions are the practical engagement in providing through our own resources the good that our brothers and sisters need to survive and flourish. John describes uh, this giving as true love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we are to lay down our lives for the brothers. How do we lay down our lives for the brothers? But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? If I have it and you're in need and I hold it, that's not love. Amen, people of God. Think about the early church's practice of caring for widows who could no longer care for themselves, who had no prospects of earning an income for themselves because of age and the loss of their husbands. What would it look like for us, not just What would this look like for us, not just with widows, but with others unable to work or to provide for themselves within our community? How do we come alongside of them and help them and walk with them? And how do we go beyond charity? How do we go beyond the handout to actually a life of walking alongside of people where our resources are also their resources? so that they might also be cared for.
Amen, people of God. Keeping this command not only involves resisting the temptation to further our own condition through stealing and radical generosity, uh, um, but it also includes uh, it also includes faith. It also includes faith. So it, it includes resisting the temptation to further our own condition through stealing. It includes restoration of what we have deprived, taken, or held back from others. It also involves faith. To resist the impulse within themselves and within the nations around them to steal, Israel would have to have faith in the Lord, faith in the Lord's commitment to their well-being. Of course, such a commitment from the Lord should not have been in question, and yet Israel's grumblings in the wilderness journey would often center around their lack of faith in God's provision and their lack of faith in God's protection. Israel struggled in the struggled in the wilderness to believe that God would provide and to believe that God would protect, a struggle that would characterize their life as a nation. As a result, they were, they were often found actually participating in the sin of stealing. Just, just read the prophets who in their list of Israel's sins against God and neighbor often include robbery and theft. But they had been given a land flowing with milk and honey. They had not stewarded that land well and had not used its vast resources for the well-being of the whole community. Indeed, as the prophet Amos demonstrates, uh, 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 demonstrates uh, that some in his day were living in excess, oppressing the weak to enhance their own condition in life. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into harm, declares the Lord. The imagery is that of people who are well-fed and well-hydrated but who have earned it on the backs of the poor, who have er earned it by stealing and taking what was not theirs and holding back what they were commanded to give. What their stealing demonstrated was a lack of trust, a lack of contentment with having enough to live. Yes, Jesus tells us that this is precisely how those who are part of his kingdom are meant to live, with trust and contentment. So seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all of his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We are to live with trust that everything we need, the Lord will provide. We are to embrace the perspective the Apostle Paul provides, in, uh, provides us in 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. When is the last time you woke up in the morning and said, Jesus, if I got food and clothing, I'm content? Ain't nothing else on your list, is it? It's food and clothing, I'm good. It ain't on mine either, so I'm not picking on y'all. Talking to myself as well. But if we trust God to provide and protect, it frees us, actually, to radically share what we have rather than stealing from others by taking what they have or holding back what the Lord commands us to give. 
faith in this sense isn't just about believing that God is, but believing that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It is believing that when we live as God tells us to, we will not be disappointed. God will not fail us in his promises to us. He will provide. He will provide. And this provision will guard us from becoming thieves. This is why the writer of Proverbs says this, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The call here, brothers and sisters, is to believe, to trust that God is not deceiving us in his word when he tells us that those who live with a kingdom-first mindset will have all their needs provided. In fact, God even invites his people in the old covenant to test him in this regard, to believe him enough to take the risk that if they give as he has commanded them, that he would provide more than enough. You won't have to steal. You won't have to take. If you, if you do what I say, if you bring all the tithe into the storehouse, that there is food in my house, I will open up the windows of heaven, and I will pour out a blessing so great that there will not be room enough to receive it. What I'm saying to you is, is, is the motivation away from stealing is to actually believe God's promises, to believe that he is not lying to you when he tells you to live in this way. And this trust is not simply built through studying about it. It is built through obedience, through doing what God says, and then watching him keep his promises. It is built when we take what is in our hands and share it with those in need. As we do this, we will learn the truth of the words of the hymn, God will take care of you. Be not dismayed, whatever betide. God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide. God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day, over all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care care of you. And if we believe that, if if we believe that he will take care of us, then it it enables us not to take from from others, not to hold back what God commands us to give, but to open up our hands and do exactly what the Lord gives. As he gives it to us, we give it away. As he gives it to us, we give it away. As he gives it to us, we give it away. And do you hear what's happening? He gives it to us, and we give it away. He gives it to us, and we give it away. And he keeps giving, and he keeps giving, and he keeps giving. I just read it to you this morning that he will continue to supply seed to the sower. As you plant, as you give, he gives you more seed. Then you plant, and he, and he gives, you give. That's how it works.
Israel got up every morning, and what was on the ground? Manna. They got up every morning, manna. All I'm saying is God is faithful, and you can trust him. And that trust enables you to keep the Eighth Commandment, <laughs> to not steal, but to freely give what God has given. The Eighth Commandment in which God calls us away from stealing, from taking what belongs to our neighbor, holding back what he commands us to give. It's a call like the others before it and those after it. It's a call to be the Lord's display of what true human community under his rule and reign looks like. Jesus has saved us. He has set us free from the dominion of sin. He has poured his spirit into us so that we might be his community. This is a commandment through faith in him that we keep by resisting the temptation to further our own condition in life through stealing, by radical generosity, restoration of what we have deprived or taken from others, and by faith in the Lord's commitment to our well-being. Amen, people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. We give you thanks that we do not have to steal. We do not have to take from others. We do not have to hold back from others, Lord, what they need to flourish. We can be faithful to you in this commandment because you have made promises to us, and you have indeed invited us to test those promises to be true because they are true. David says, I have been young and I have been old but I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. So, Lord, I pray that we would believe that, that we would trust you, have faith in you, and that as a result, Lord, we, we might, as the church, individual and collective, that we might not be found to be thieves, but that we might be found to be a generous community that gives freely to all who come to us, knowing that you will continue to provide for us to be a generous community. We pray and ask this, not just for ourselves, but for all your people. In Jesus' name.